Please be seated. And before I read tonight, one thing that occurs to me, uh, whenever you get a chance to read or hear the scripture, especially amongst the oldest texts, uh, one of the things that uh, occurred to me, I I took Greek in in college, and um, one of the most profound thoughts was that you have these scriptures that were probably originally oral, and then ended up being written down in Hebrew, and then hundreds of years later, written down in Greek, and then hundreds of years later, translated to Latin, and then hundreds of years later, translated to English, and then it finally gets to this point where we're able to read and share this. Highly improbable, you know, it's especially the fact that we're all literate and that we have access to these texts. It's really just the fact that we can read and hear this just fairly amazing, and it's one of those things that maybe we forget because it's so available to us that it went through a very, very dire and long multiple thousand year history uh, for the story of God to be continued on, and it's one of those things that uh, it's best if we remember that it's something of a miracle even to be able to hear and read these words today. So, a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, and verses 15 and 16. When Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, she shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This is the word of the Lord. i got to tag on to this a little bit, because um, I don't know if some of you guys have noticed, but half the time I wind up rereading the scripture we read in my message anyway, and some people wonder why double up, and there's something sacred about the proclamation of the Word of God. I mean, just in and of itself, not just so that we can teach it and expound on it, but just the Word itself going forth is a powerful thing, and that's been something that the church has done throughout history, is to have a formal reading of the Word, and this kind of started... um, in uh, Ezra, when Ezra came, when they came back from captivity, um, it was the first, Ezra's known as the father of hermeneutics. It was the first time that the scripture is in one language and the people speak a different language. They spoke Hebrew when they went into captivity, um, Aramaic when they came out. So it was the first time the scripture ever had to be translated. And the way they kind of commemorated being released from captivity was to stand up and read the entire Torah in one setting. So the first five books of the Bible were read straight. And uh, the people stood for the entire reading. And because they didn't have microphones, somebody would stand at the extent of a human voice and a chunk would be read and then they would hear it and turn and shout it out to the next group of people. And they did that and, and they just stood until all five books had been read. And, um, 
And, and, and I can see people squirm when I get some of those long passages and I want to read a whole chapter. So I'm throwing that out just so you remember um, where we come from. You know, people are like, man, Chris, that was like five verses. But um, so um, so we value the reading of the word and uh, and it's uh, it's important to um, understand that that's a good thing and that's a big thing. OK, this is week two of Lent. Um, we talked last week about how Lent is, is a season of wilderness. It's when we kind of commemorate the 40 years in the wilderness and also Jesus' uh, 40-day fast. And um, it's supposed to be a tough season, kind of a raw season, kind of when we face um, some, of the, uh, some of our doubts and fears and pains, and we kind of confront them in the wilderness. And uh, it's also a season of repentance. Um, and so this is kind of a raw, exposed season when we, uh, when we get kind of real with some things. So um, as we were going through our church days in the lectionary through Lent, meaning we go to the Book of Common Prayers and we preach on the passages that um, huge chunks of the church are preaching on this week. Um, we, uh, we leave the lectionary for what we call ordinary time, but during the high seasons, we like to kind of tap in with the rest of the church and talk about what they're talking about. And so... Um, this season, when I was looking through the, the scripture references, I, I kind of uh, tied myself on to, um, have you guys met Rose yet? She's absolutely gorgeous. If you get a chance, say hi to Rose. Joy loves being centered out. That's Rose. Ah, oh, so beautiful. Um, so uh, she's never going to forgive me, by the way. Um, if you were reading her lips, those were cuss words. Um, no, uh, the, the Old Testament readings this season or this year um, really kind of honed in on some of the big covenants, some of the promises of the Old Testament. And it really kind of um, grabbed me because I thought, you know, wilderness is the time when promises matter. Um, wilderness are the times when we really hang on to promises. When, you know, when, you're, when, when everything's going wrong and, and you feel alone and you feel lost and you feel wilderness that's when you just kind of grab onto those things. We talked last week about how it's when your kids wander and they're not walking with God that you really grab hold of. You said if I raise them in the way they would go, then they're older, not depart from it. And those promises are meaningful in those moments. So it seems like the wilderness is when we need the promises the most. And so I thought it'd be fun to just kind of tie into some of these promises from the Old Testament. Last week we started with the Noahic Covenant. Um, right after, and this one comes right on the heels of, of real wilderness. This is right after the great flood. Um, and if you've ever been um, around after a flood, you can just imagine the devastation, just the, the destruction of, of a flood like that. And in, and in the standing in that destruction, God comes in and gives a promise. And he says, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to care for creation and and, uh, and he, he kind of puts himself in covenant relationship with every living thing, really. And, uh, and we talked about what kind of implications that might have on us to serve a God who's in covenant relationship with everyone. We have a tendency to think of him as the Christian God, um, when the truth is the very first real solid covenant in the scripture is between God and everyone, God and everything, really. And that, that has some implications on the way we live. And Jesus expounded on it a little bit more um, instead, God sends rain on the godly and the ungodly. He sends sunshine on the just and the unjust. That He's an impartial God um, who loves indiscriminately. And we talked about then, if that's the case, what's it mean to be chosen? Like, what is the, what's the impact of being the chosen of God if God loves everybody indiscriminately? And, 
And in all honesty, it, it's probably more responsibility than it is privilege. It means that God, when he wants to bless the entire world and to love on the entire world, he chooses us to do that. And it started with Abraham. We told Abraham right in the beginning, which we're going to get into a little bit tonight. He said, I want to bless the whole world. Through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. And so to, the, the purpose is to bless the whole world. The means is by grabbing Abraham and saying, I'm going to choose you so that we can bless the whole world together. And that's what it means to be chosen. We also talked about if we serve a God in covenant relationship with everyone, then that impacts who we love. And Jesus said that um, to be known as his followers, we should even love our enemies. And he, he even said, if, if you just love the people that are easy to love, what, how does that make you different from anybody else? And we even highlighted a few things that we tend to think of when we think of what it means to be a Christian and be different. Um, you know, we talked about drinking. Some people think that if you don't drink, you're different. And that, that could also mean you're Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Sikh. They don't drink either. Um, we talked about adultery. You could be any of those religions and not commit adultery. We talked about, um, remember what the other one we talked about? Cussing, swearing, yeah. Uh, they all, and you can add Judaism in on that one if you include uh, not using the Lord's name in vain. Um, you get Judaism in there as well. So, uh, but if you truly want to be different, if you truly want to stand out, and that doesn't mean you should do those things. I'm not saying, I'm just saying those things will not identify you as special because you're going to be just like the other religions. You want to be different. You want to be special. You want to stand out amongst everybody. Love your enemies. That's the one nobody does. That's the one that, that Jesus is like, even the tax collectors love the people that are easy to love. Even, the, even the, those Gentiles over there do that. You want to be like your father in heaven, love your enemies. And, that's the, and we, we kind of wrapped up with that last week. Um, and it was just dead silent in there. I was, I've never looked at so many like, uh, non-supportive faces, we'll say. Um, yeah. And so I ended by saying, hey, this is Lent. What did you expect, basically? So, um, tonight, uh, we're going into the next major covenant, which is the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and in this one, um, we find out that after the Noahic covenant, nothing really changes. Nobody, um, nobody just turns to God and follows him passionately. They, they all kind of go their own way. They eventually lead um, to the Tower of Babel. God scatters languages. They all kind of spread. And there comes a point when God says, I'm going to do something new in the world. I'm going to do something big. Um, I'm going to impact the world. And he does uh, that by calling um, Abraham. And tonight's passage is interesting. It comes, uh, the passage that, um, that Bill read comes kind of late in the Abrahamic story. Um, this is really the fourth time God has had this conversation with Abraham. Um, we're going to read a few of them today. The first goes back to chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, those who bless you, um, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you the, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then he goes, and so that's the first time he shows up with this kind of thing. And he does it again in chapter 13. He says, then the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one, so 
If one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring could also be counted. That's the second time. Again, in chapter 15, he comes back around and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens, the number of the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. And then he comes around in chapter 17 to tonight's passage. So Abraham's been hearing this for a while. He's been listening to this over and over and over again. Well, this time a couple things change um, that, are, that are pretty key. For one, um, he changes Abraham's name. Uh, he changes it from, uh, it's been Abram up to this point. Um, and he actually changes it from Abram to Abraham, um, uh, which means father of a multitude, which is ironic because at this point he has one illegitimate son. And, and God, and he's 99 years old, and God changes his name to the father of a multitude, um, uh, which is interesting uh, that, that God, and this is, this is kind of powerful, really, um, because this is generally the way God works. It happens in Romans, too, where God spends chapter 5 of Romans kind of, and the beginning of chapter 6 kind of telling us who we are. Is that you have been crucified with Christ. You are raised to newness of life. And blah, blah, blah. And then it, about halfway through chapter 6, he says, now reckon yourselves also to be dead. Like, then he gives us the job of, of kind of um, reckoning is, a, is a, like an accounting term. It's to balancing the scales. He tells you what is. And then he kind of tells us, now you have to believe that. And, you have to, and he's kind of doing that with Abraham here. He's saying, you are the father of a multitude. Now it's your job to reckon that to actually be. And, uh, and so that's kind of Abraham's job here. The second thing that changes here is God introduces circumcision in this passage. It's not actually part of our lectionary reading, but it's like a couple verses after he calls Abraham. He says this, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise uh, in the flesh of his foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation whether born in your house or, brought or bought with your money, who is a foreigner, who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought, I think I doubled that up, with money shall be circumcised. Uh, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from your people. He has broken my covenant. So this is the beginning of the Jewish people. This is actually a very key moment here um, because we, we kind of get caught up in the, in the uh, technicalities. We talked, we've studied through Acts this year and we talked about them fighting over whether or not Gentiles needed to be circumcised when they became Christians, when they kind of became part of the family. This was part of their national identity from the beginning. This is kind of the creation of the, the um, Jewish people. And this is before next week, we're actually going to get into the Mosaic Covenant and talk about the creation of the Jewish religion. But this is the creation of the Jewish people, the bloodline of Abraham, the children of Abraham. And it begins with this covenant of circumcision, which is you can understand why the Jews um, later were having a hard time with the fact that that Gentiles wanted to be part of this community. They wanted to be part of the blessing of Abraham. They wanted to follow this Jewish Messiah, but didn't feel like they were supposed to take part in this. And so this was a, you can, you can kind of understand why this was such a big argument, why, why this was such an emotionally charged argument. It wasn't just a, uh, a technicality. I don't know that we have a real equivalent that we're so attached to that we would say, um, no, you absolutely cannot become a Christian if you don't do this. But, 
this was, this was big to them. This is the Jewish people. This is how they're known and identified. Um, and this is absolutely key. Uh, because, and this is something I want to get across, is that what makes this covenant work is that God makes it. Um, this, and this says nothing about whether or not Israel is honorable. It says absolutely nothing about whether they're faithful to God. It says absolutely nothing about whether or not they even believe in God. And this is, this is key because sometimes, you know, we're supportive in, of Israel and we, and we back Israel. And then you see them do some things in the news and you're like, guys, you're not helping yourself much. Like, sometimes they're downright nasty to the Palestinians. And, and you see that and, and you're tempted to not, to question some things. But that's the way a covenant with God works. It has nothing to do with their faithfulness. It has to do with God's faithfulness. Like if we have a tendency to judge, and this is something the church has missed in history because there's been points from the Crusades all the way to some of the reformers who look at Israel and they see him as Christ killers. They're like, they, he, they abandoned Christ. They didn't, they didn't believe in their Messiah. So, so we judge them on that basis. But the reality is it has nothing to do with how faithful Israel is. It has to do with how faithful God is. And God has made a covenant to be faithful to Israel no matter how they act. And then it hasn't always turned out great for them because that means when they walk away, God usually is pretty rough on them. And, he, and he, he has some very tough methods of bringing them kind of back into the fold. But this is also important to the church because we have a tendency to, to get frustrated with the way the church acts sometimes. And we, we look back in, in stages of history and we go, yeah, those are the... That was when it was the medieval Catholic Church. Like, I'm a Protestant. That was, that was, well, the reality is that's still our history. Like, there would be no Protestant church if there wasn't that church. And, and yeah, there's times when the church has done terrible things. There's times when we want to kind of separate ourselves from some of those things. But the reality is it has nothing to do with the faithfulness of the church. It has to do with the faithfulness of our God. Like, that he has attached himself to us. And you look at it sometimes, you want to say there's got to be better ways than, than this group of ragamuffins to do your work, but we're what he picked and we serve a faithful God. And so he stays faithful to us even when we stray. Um, So the covenant doesn't really have anything to do with us. It has to do with God. So last week we learned that God loves indiscriminately. um, And that means we have to love indiscriminately. And this week we learned that God is in covenant with Israel. So we, we are for Israel. We, we should pray for Israel. We should be, um, uh, supportive of Israel uh, because our God is. And if our God is in covenant relationship with Israel, then so are we. Um, okay. The real thing I want to pull out of this week, though, and this is, uh, and to draw attention to from our story, is that um, God's goal here was to bless the entire world. To, to have an impact. We read it in that very, it's very first thing to Abraham was uh, that I'm going to be a blessing to everyone. So you're, I'm going to covenant with you so that I can bless everyone. And up to this point, he had kind of functioned as the God of the whole world, right? He was in covenant relationship with God. Everybody knew this God. So at this point, he kind of becomes, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He kind of becomes the God of Israel at this moment in a new way. And when he starts this new work, this big, grand plan of blessing the entire world, it starts with a baby. One baby. Like the whole thing hinges at a time when having a baby wasn't even necessarily safe and certainly not guaranteed. 
he hinges his whole plan for blessing the entire world on the birth of one baby. Abraham, and he's already got Ishmael, but he's like, no, this is going to happen through this one baby. The entire story is dependent on Isaac. Um, and that, so I did like some look at, history, at the history of what was going on at this time. Um, if, if you go over to South America, they were building this giant temple called the Temple of the Crossed Hands. And there's evidence of all kinds of idol worship and maybe even some human sacrifices. In Africa, they were getting ready to figure out iron smelting so that they could come up with a whole new way to kill each other um, with new and more powerful weapons. Um, archaeologists have found ancient worship sites in Asia dated at the same time as Abraham where they were worshiping this dragon serpent god and there's mass child graves around this temple site. And the more optimistic archaeologists say, well, they were probably bringing their children to pray for them and then if they didn't make it, they just buried them on site. And the, the, I think the more realistic was that this was a, an area for child sacrifices where they were sacrificing children to this dragon god. And God's answer to all of this is a baby. That, that in the midst of this depravity, he looks down and says, things are sorely broken. Things are in absolute devastation and horrible things are happening. I'm going to get involved and send a baby. That's his plan. And this seems to be the way it happens. When, he, when, when his children cry out to him in captivity, his answer is to stick a baby in a basket and push him out on a river and say, there, I've fixed the problem. And then later when he wants to save his people and save, you know, all of us, he sends a baby in just the backwoods of Bethlehem. That God's answer always seems to be family. It always seems to be lineage. And this is something I feel like we really need today. Um, because we have a tendency um, to forget the power of small things. The power of little insignificant things to do really, really big things. I was reading this week about Billy Graham, um, you know, since he passed away. And uh, his very first crusade in L.A. Um, was scheduled for three weeks. And the first several days were almost empty. And this, uh, the, the way the story goes, this little housekeeper um, came and really liked the way he sounded. And so she goes home and tells her boss... Um, you have got to go hear this guy. The, the house she took care of, you have got to go hear this guy. And as, as there's like four different accounts, as legends have it, um, he took his mistress, he went in disguise and took his mistress to this crusade, this Billy Graham crusade. And, uh, and when, uh, after the crusade, after that night, he went home and the next morning he called um, his chief editor and supposedly said two words. William Randolph Hearst said, Puff Graham was the only thing he said, and he hung up the phone, and the guy knew what he was talking about. And the very next day, every Hearst publication had stories about Billy Graham. They called him the Silver-Tongued Evangelist, and the three-week crusade was stretched to eight weeks. They tore down the tent they had and put up a circus tent that held 6,000. A week later, they tore it down and put up one that held 9,000. And the Billy Graham ministry was created because when God wants to literally affect a century, he calls a housekeeper. And says, go do a big work. Like, go start a, a pebble that's going to roll downhill and turn into this giant thing. God works in little things. So what's this have to do with Lent? 
And this is... <laughs> I'm going to start by saying Lent's supposed to be tough. It's supposed to sting a little bit, so just bear that in mind. I don't think I... I don't think I let off with that last week, and so when I started throwing punches, everybody got mad. Um, last week I stood here and told you that to really follow Christ, you have to love your enemies. You have to love the people that are absolutely hard to love, the people who you do not want to love. Um, if you read the Lent devotional this week, um, I gave a challenge at the end to pick somebody you despise and 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 pray for them, and not just. Pray that God get a hold of their life, but pray for their success and prosperity. Pray that they continue to do well, that they thrive. And I was like, and if, if this is easy to do, you pick the wrong person. Like if, if, if it's not somebody that almost turns your stomach to pray for, then you're not getting it. You're not tapping in. So um, this week we're going to pick on something new, something called functional saviors. Anybody familiar with this word? A functional savior is uh, similar to an idol. Um, only an idol is something that we value and worship and make sacrifices for. Um, a functional savior is something we turn to for our salvation. It's something we turn to to save us. A functional savior um, is where we go when we look around and see that everything is absolutely broken. And this has to be the fix. This is the only thing that could be the fix to all this brokenness. Um, some people turn to work. Uh, some people think if I just put in more hours and, and, and work harder, I can dig myself out of this. And that's a tool God can use, but it's certainly not a savior. Some people turn to violence. I had no choice. Like, they were going to hurt me. I had no choice but to, to do violence. It was the only thing that could save me. Some people turn to their savings accounts, self-esteem gurus, health foods and medicine. Some people turn, we talked about last week, some people turn to environmentalism. They just have this fear that the, that the world is going to end if we don't fix these things. Rather than embracing creation care as an act of worship to our creator that gave us this beautiful world to take care of, and that as an act of worship we take care of it, instead we're consumed with fear that somehow if we don't do this, there will be no world for our kids and, and we're never supposed to function out of fear. Um, but some people, that's what's going to save us. And the root of the question, the root question seems to be, if we're going to make it, we clearly need blank. We clearly need this if we're going to make it. What is going to save you? And I think the biggest and most damaging place this happens in the church today is politics. Um, if, if, if we're going to stop racism, we need government to pass a law. If we're going to save the sanctity of marriage, we need government to outlaw sin. If we're going to fix income inequality, we clearly need Bernie. I'm supposed to laugh at that one. There it is. If we're going to save America, we need a wall. If we're going to save the rest of the world, we need to not have a wall. Whatever side you're on, if we're going to save our schools, we clearly need more guns. If we're going to save our schools, we clearly need no guns. It doesn't matter what side you're on. When the, when the, the gut feeling is... The only way to save us is for government to act. Then government is a functional savior. Government is serving as your savior. Immigration, extreme poverty, lack of health care, no water, terrorism, climate change, GMOs, big pharma, rampant pornography, war, lack of education, and on and on and on and on. 
we look at the depravity in the world, this massive depravity, and then you come to church every week and hear somebody go, love God and love others. Pray. Read your Bible. And you're like, what in the world could that do against this huge problem we have? What in the world can raising my kids well? Like, these are big issues. We need big answers. Government-sized answers. Like laws. Getting really quiet. There's times like this, I think we understand Abraham's response to the covenant here. It wasn't part of the lectionary reading, but we're going to throw it up here. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is the verse immediately following our lectionary reading. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham wanted the right thing. He saw the future God wanted, and he wanted it. He wanted what God was promising. He wanted the blessings. He wanted the impact. He wanted God to do everything that God was saying he wanted to do. He just didn't have the redemptive imagination to picture how in the world it could happen. How in the world is this going to actually work? Just let it be through Ishmael. Just let's do it this way over here. It's so much easier. I can imagine that way. I can imagine the right law outlining the, the right things. And I can imagine if government would just get off their butts and do the right thing, then the problem would be fixed. I can, that I can picture. What I can't picture is how in the world praying and loving people and doing something nice for my neighbor is ever going to have a dent on these giant issues. So he asks, maybe we could do it through Ishmael. Maybe we could do it this other way. And God's answer is no. I'd rather do little miracles. I'd rather change hearts. He tells us to go raise our kids so they know they have value. To make a friend across racial or socioeconomic barriers. To be present in someone else's pain. To pray. To do a good deed for a neighbor. To be one kind voice on Facebook. He tells us to shine and to, and to just stand on a hill and, and shine. And obviously, if he leads us to, if he, if he speaks to you to join a movement or donate to a cause or, or vote a certain way, do it. I'm not saying that we abandon all those things. Absolutely. Obey God and, and do what he tells you to do. That's not the point. The point is those things can't save us. Those things aren't what save us. And the second you feel your heart turn to those things as the answer... You're serving a functional Savior. You're serving, you're serving the wrong Savior. Let me give you an example, and this one's going to sting a little bit, and this is where you're going to probably start chasing me with pitchforks. Um, I personally would love to see abortion outlawed in our country. That would, and my, my beliefs are, are um, pretty complicated and, and nuanced in that field, but I'm going to simplify for the sake of this. But what would be even better, I think, would be if abortion was 100% legal and nobody used it. Wouldn't that be the dream? Wouldn't that be even better? Is if we didn't have to make a law uh, about morality, if we were actually moral. Like, and sometimes we fight so hard for Ishmael, we forget about Isaac. We're like, God, if you would just, like, just, just outlaw it. Not, 
God, change hearts. Why are so many people wanting to do this? Why is our land so broken that people are, that this is, that this is what people want to do? Like, why do we devalue life so much and devalue having babies so much? Like, rather than being concerned with that, we're like, forget Isaac. I'm just going to go with Ishmael. Just outlaw the dang thing. Like, and we throw all of our weight, and I'm not saying anything about the way we vote or what we vote for. I'm just saying God has bigger dreams. God has been promising us Isaac. That's real quiet. Abraham spent 24 years at this point hearing this promise over and over and over again. Over and over and over again with exactly zero to show for it. Nothing has changed in 24 years and God keeps coming back. I'm going to give you so many descendants you're not going to know what to do. You can't even count them. They're going to be all over the place. Blah, 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 blah. Nothing changes. And they hear the promise again, and nothing changes. He hears the promise again, and nothing changes. 24 years of absolute fruitless belief until something changes. And we come in every week and we hear the same promises that we're we're to advance God's kingdom, that God wants to to change the world and bless the world, and we're going to go out as a little dinky church and, and... and change the world for Jesus. And as believers in Christ, we're going to go out and, and be a light and shine in the darkness and blah, blah, blah. And then you read the paper and it's like, nothing's changing. Nothing's changing. Another suicide, another shooting, another... And it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to lose hope. And it's easy to go, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. Oh, that you would just do it this other way rather than than this crazy idea of taking a bunch of people who believe in you and sending them out in the world to be light and honestly think that that's going to change things. Except, that's, that's the command. Nowhere are we commanded to vote the right way. Nowhere are we commanded to, to, to grab an army and make it happen. Nowhere are we commanded to, you know, we're commanded to go be the light, to go just shine in darkness. So how do we respond to this? Uh, Lent is a season of repentance. It's a season when we face um, face our demons a little bit. So uh, my hopes are that as we would uh, sing and take communion together, that maybe you would take a minute and name your functional saviors and be real with yourself for a second and go, honestly, this is, this is where I turn. When things are bad and I know... Uh, and I'm, and I'm getting distraught and I'm getting uh, discouraged, I know for a fact I turn here rather than turning to Jesus, rather than turning to God and saying, what is your answer here? Like, what am I supposed to do today? I know I turn to this functional Savior. I know that I turn to this other thing to save me. And then repent. Just apologize for that and turn back to, to Jesus because that's, um, that's what Lent is for. And that's what, uh, what's funny is every time we turn around, we find him standing right there, um, ready to forgive and embrace. Whatever that thing is, it's probably your Ishmael. It's probably um, the only thing you can imagine. It's, it's the only thing, the only way you could picture God doing it. Um, and the problem is um, our imagination, our redemptive imagination is not big enough. The problem is not um, that God is not big enough. It's that we can't, uh, our, 
our imagination's not big enough. And so just ask God after you repent of your functional saviors to give you a bigger imagination. Just to, to, to maybe open you up to believe that his way of impacting the world um, will actually work.